today. For those of you visiting, my name's Kieran Carr. I'm the Associate Minister uh, here at St Philip's. Uh, Malcolm is uh, in Jerusalem. He's touring the Holy Land for the goodness knows what number time, uh, and he'll be back in about two and a half uh, weeks or so. Uh, and, uh, and I get to... Um, I guess I get to play while the vicar's away. Uh, although I'm going to be away for the next week, so uh, Malcolm's, uh, uh, sorry, Malcolm there, Bob, uh, is uh, going to be in charge. I'm at a camp uh, all week. Um, well, uh, looking, for the leader, looking for a Leader is the name of our series, and, and, and in the reading we kind of get two stories for the price of one today. There's, there's a story about Jonathan and then, and then a, a story following on from that about Saul. And, um, and, and the title really of, the, of this talk and what we see in this passage is the faith of Jonathan and the folly of Saul. The faith of Jonathan and the folly of Saul. Um, but first, let's set the scene. We, we've seen this before. There, there's a massive Philistine army. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to do what they always try to do, which is wipe out the people of God. The problem is that the Israelites are absolutely no match for the Philistines. They're like a bunch of school kids playing against the All Blacks. Uh, is, anyone, is anyone watching the rugby at the moment? I've, I've, got, I've, got, I've got five or six of you with that illustration. Not, not, not a very good hit rate. But, but, or maybe a, a bunch of school kids playing against the Richmond Tigers. Uh, uh, they are totally outmatched uh, in terms of the size of the Philistines, in terms of the strength of the Philistines, and in terms of the courage of the Philistines. It's a familiar situation that we've seen in the story thus far. So I want to go through how they're matched Firstly, in terms of size, if you look at chapter 13, verse 5, and by the way, I do hope you'll keep your Bibles open. In chapter 13, verse 5, it says, The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 30,000 chariots, that's a lot, 6,000 charioteers, and then how many soldiers? Soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's a few. That's, that's a little, that's a few soldiers that they've got. And then look at, uh, look at the Israelites' um, numbers in, in chapter 14, verse 2. With Saul were about 600 men. So they're completely vastly outmatched in terms of their size, but then in terms of their strength. Chapter 13, verse 19 tells us about the Philistines, that they had a monopoly on all the weapons. They controlled like the bronze. They were more technologically advanced. They controlled all the weapons. And so if you look at verse 22, it says, On, on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. They're outmatched in terms of their size, in terms of their strength, but also in terms of their courage. Because look at chapter 13, verse 6, and what, what they're doing. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical, they're not wrong, and that their army was hard-pressed, what did they do? They hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. I mean, they are completely outnumbered here. And they're stuffed. The Philistine army is a vast army. They don't stand a chance. But to make matters worse, in chapter 14, verse 2, it says Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. This is the king that they choose. Do you remember why they wanted a king for? Do you remember what they wanted a king for? They've just chosen him. What do they want him for? In chapter 8, to go out and fight our battles for us. And he's under a pomegranate tree, just chowing down some delicious pomegranates. 
I mean, this is not a good situation. They're in trouble here. So whilst the Philistines are sending out raiding parties and surrounding them, he's just kicking back, chowing down some pomegranates. This is what Saul does in the face of an overwhelming situation. What do you do in the face of an overwhelming situation? Can you picture yourself just, you know, let's go move a few suburbs away, sit down under a tree and chow down some pomegranates. They're pretty delicious. What is it that you find to escape in, in the face of an overwhelming circumstance? So escapism, I mean, we see it everywhere. Our culture is, is expert at escapism in the face of an overwhelming circumstance. I don't know about you, but I'm an expert in the face of overwhelming circumstances. And that's what Saul is doing. This king that they've chosen, whom God has poured his spirit out on, whom God has said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might and I'll be with you. This king that they chose to go out and fight their battles for them. And he's just run away and hiding. It's against this backdrop that we see the faith of Jonathan, his son. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost, in brackets, this vast army as numerous as the sand on the seashore, on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Now, he had to pass through this sort of um, set of uh, cliffs uh, and this photo on the uh, screen shows you these two cliffs that they had to pass through in, in verses 4 and 5. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff, one called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other to the south toward Geba. So Jonathan was down south with Saul and he wanted to go up north and he had to pass through these two cliffs to reach them. And to um, highlight, or uh, the, the verse to highlight and to underline in this passage is verse 6, because Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, this is a bit of a kamikaze mission. I mean, this is a bit of a suicide mission. It's He's got him and his armor bearer and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I mean, what kind of odds are they? Clearly, he hasn't studied, um, well, any, any military uh, ideas, but, but clearly hasn't studied probability. What's he doing? Well, of course, his faith isn't built on probability. His faith is built on on God. And not just some, I believe in God, airy fairy, like anyone can say, you've got to have faith. No, a specific faith. What does he say? He says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing. He's the almighty, powerful creator of the universe, and nothing can hinder him. His arm is not too short to save. Firstly, our God is powerful. And secondly, his faith says our God saves. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. He's a saving God. Now, I did this quick uh, word search of how many times the word save occurs in 1 and 2 Samuel. And it came up 51 times because that's a core message of Samuel. 
They were looking for a leader, remember? They were looking for a saviour. They chose Saul so that he could save them. He could go out and fight their battles for them. But God is the saviour. God is the one who saves. And Jonathan gets it. He's not basing his faith and his strength on himself or on Saul, but on the fact that God saves and he can save by many or by few. That is his faith grounded in the promises and the truth about God. You see, because there are all kinds of saviours that we can turn to, all kinds of things we can put our hope in that all boil down to us putting our hope in ourselves. For them, it could have been an army, putting faith in your swords. The reason that Samuel 1 and 2 Samuel talks so much about what they have in a hand and the word hand comes up so often is because it's about our strength and putting our confidence in our own strength. So we see Goliath with the sword in his hand. We see uh, the idol in the temple with his hands cut off. We um, We see Saul with a spear in his hand. It's about our strength. But Psalm 33 verse 16 says, No king is saved by the size of his arm. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. No wonder they were so terrified. No wonder they were so anxious because they were putting their hope in things that cannot save. And no wonder the society that we live in is so riddled with anxiety and fear. Because we put our hope in things that cannot save. Is it your education? Is it your skill? Is it your prowess? Is it your acumen? Is it your great wealth? Is it your house? Is it your car? No wonder we're so anxious because none of these things can save. But Jonathan knew that our God saves and that's where he put his hope and his confidence. And so he says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you find yourself riddled with anxiety and fear? Could it be that you're putting your hope and your confidence and in your strength in something other than the only one who can save? Could it be if you transferred your confidence out of whatever it is that you're basing it on and putting it into the hands of the living, almighty, saving God that you might find a peace that surpasses understanding? Remember back in chapter 7, they were having this worship service, the Israelites and the Philistines came bearing down on them and it says while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near uh, to attack them. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines. That was back in chapter 7. Remember they set up an Ebenezer, thus far the Lord has helped us. Let's try to remember. We didn't have any weapons, we didn't have any swords, we didn't have any army and most importantly we didn't have any human king. Because God is our king and the Lord thundered against our enemies. It's like Hannah in chapter 2, Samuel's mom, that nobody from nowhere, no power, no strength, no authority, no influence from some backwater town. She said this in chapter 2, it's not by strength that one prevails. She knew that because she didn't have any strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. And so here we have Jonathan in this context with facing an army as vast as the sand on the seashore. And who has all the strength in this situation? The Philistines. They have a vast army. It's not by strength that the Lord prevails, Jonathan's thinking. And who's opposing the Lord in this situation? The Philistines are opposing the Lord. They're trying to wipe out 
the, the people of God. And what does 1 Samuel chapter 2 say about those who oppose the Lord? They will be shattered. So that's Jonathan's faith. It's not built on what he can see or on human strength. It's built on the word of God and the power and promise of God. And so that's the equation that he bases his faith on. And so to cut a long story short, he and his armor bearer, they go over to the Philistines. The Philistines challenge them to sort of come up onto the rock and, and, and Jonathan climbs up, they take him on. And then verse 15, then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. And only after Saul sees that now the odds are in their favour, now he can see because he's not viewing it by faith, he's viewing it just by human uh, uh, equations, then he joins the battle, following his son. Even though he's the one with the spirit, he's the one with the promises of God. And verse 26, it says, So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. And that, my friends, is the faith of Jonathan. He saw the enemy of God's people trespassing on God's property, attacking God's people, bringing down his name, and he thought, God is powerful, God saves, and so he stood up and he took action. That's the faith of Jonathan, but it leads us in stark contrast to the folly of Saul in verse 24 and beyond. So if Jonathan is a picture of faith, Saul is a picture of folly. If Jonathan shows us what it looks like to put your confidence in God's hands, Saul shows us what it looks like to take matters into your own hands and to go in your own strength, to face life in your own courage, in your own ability. If Jonathan relied on God's strength, Saul relied on his own strength. Jonathan led by faith and Saul led by force. I want you to see the contrast between verse 23 and 24. Verse 23, because of, in light of Jonathan, it says, So on that day the Lord saved Israel, based on Jonathan's faith. But then verse 24, it says, The Israelites were in distress that day because of Saul. So the salvation comes through Jonathan and his faith, but distress comes through Saul because of his folly and his lack of faith. They were all distressed. And that's what basing your, your hope on your own strength and your own ability will do. It will lead to stress. We've got to get this in our hearts, dear friends, our anxiety and our fears. It's not to say that the world isn't an anxious and fear-inducing place, but it is to say that that goes way out of proportion when we base our hope and our strength on our own ability instead of in God's. So what does Saul do in verse 24? It says he bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. Do you see how he's left God out of the equation, unlike Jonathan? Jonathan said that the Lord might save us. He can save whether by many or by few. What's Saul going? I avenge myself on my enemies. So they're not God's enemies. They're Saul's enemies. It's not God who will fight for him and destroy them. Saul is going to do it. He's going to do the work. It's not God's power that will save. It's Saul. He'll do it. So it's not God's agenda that he's being served. It's Saul's agenda that's being served. And aren't we also about building our own kingdom in our own strength for our own glory? 
often. And so Saul leaves God out of the equation and he goes in his own strength. And if God's not in control of the outcome, then you've got to try and control it yourself. Never mind calling on God to face the next crisis that will inevitably come probably tomorrow or today. Never mind calling on his power or his strength for it. It's all in your hands. This is why I've got Isaiah 41 verse 10 up on my wall in my office. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I need it emblazoned on my heart and my mind. Because the crisis comes just like that. Well, Saul's curse that he lays on the people has all kinds of crazy consequences for the people. Firstly, he ends up cursing his son because Jonathan doesn't know about this curse of not being allowed to eat any any food or any honey. So verses 25-26, Jonathan has this delicious honey and he's refreshed and his eyes brighten. Secondly, uh, he ends up making trouble for the whole country, Saul does, verses 29-30, to because the soldiers have to go out and fight on an empty stomach, for goodness sake. And then thirdly, he, he, he makes trouble for them because at the end of the day, when they're absolutely starving, they see some meat and they end up eating it because they're absolutely famished because of Saul's curse. And, and they eat it, but they end up eating it with meat with blood in it, which was against the law, which was against the Judaic law. So Saul's curse and taking matters into his own hands creates all kinds of trouble. And it makes matters worse, taking matters into his own hands and taking control for himself. But then, instead of recognizing his own sin, he rebukes the soldiers and commands them to repent. And so they repent of, of, of eating this meat with blood in it. And then, verse 26, uh, 36, Saul says, Now let's go down and pursue the Philistines and plunder them till dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. They're not really with him. Because he's just going in his own strength. Do whatever seems best to you. We know you will anyway. It's like us. It's like, God, I've just got this idea. And um, really, I just want you to tell me yes. And then we'll go. And then, okay, yeah, sure, go do it. I know you'll do it anyway. Anyway, the priest is like, Saul, don't you think we should ask God first? And so in verse 37, as an afterthought, Saul's like, oh, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? And then what does it say? But God did not answer him that day. God knows from past experience that Saul is not going to listen. He's not going to listen. He's already made up his mind, so God doesn't answer. Because he's only got one answer in mind that he wants from God. He's not actually submitted to him and hearing what he has to say. But once again, Saul just assumes the problem is elsewhere. Look at verse 38. Saul therefore said, Come here, all you leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, you stand over there and I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. They cast lots to find out who sins and finally the lot falls on Jonathan and, and, and Jonathan's the one who's broken his oath. In verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. 
So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff and now I must die? Saul said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. What a psycho. What a nutcase. This is his son. What a... I mean, words can't describe. The guy's an absolute psycho. He's going to kill his son, who's just rescued them. He's talking to his own beloved son. The very man who God has just lifted up as a saviour to deliver his people, Saul wants to crucify as a sinner. And the very man who is a sinner, who's ignoring God and leaving him out of the equation, wants to kill the saviour. Sounds a little bit like our salvation, actually. The righteous one, the one in whom there was no sin, who was absolutely right before God, takes the fall and is punished and crucified as a killer in our place so that we, the unrighteous ones, in him might become the righteousness of God. Verse 45 says, But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan and he was not put to death. So there are actually two rescues that day, weren't there? Firstly, through Jonathan, God rescued the Israelites from the hands of the Philistines, but then they rescued Jonathan from the hands of Saul. There were two salvations and two rescues. This is the folly of Saul. The faith of Jonathan was to put everything in God's hands and to step out in faith. If God is for us, who can be against us? He can save whether by many or by few. And the folly of Saul was to take matters into his own hands and lead by force, to go in his own strength. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, are you facing life in your own strength, with your own ability, your own acumen, your own bank account, your own resources? And much worse, are you going to face the judgment seat of God with your own ability, your own acumen, and your own genius, your own righteousness maybe, your own church attendance. It is a vain hope for salvation. So as we wrap up this morning, we see Jonathan, an amazing thing happened through Jonathan. Just him and his armour bearer and soldiers as vast as the sand on the seashore and God rescues him and he risks his life for the salvation of his people to fight off the enemies of God. But if you think about our salvation, it's much more spectacular. Because we're not talking about a vast army, we're talking about the powers of the spiritual powers of Satan, sin, and death, and the vast power of the sin in my own heart that keeps turning its back on God that never goes. That's the power that we're talking about. And we're not talking about a saviour who just risked his life. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. No, he came to die, not to risk his life, but to give his life on the cross so that we could be rescued from the powers of Satan's sin and death and live forever and ever. A much greater salvation. And because of Jesus, we can see how great God's power is. God doesn't save by many. He doesn't save by few. No, he saves by one. 
And unlike Jonathan, who, who was able to actually fight and fend them off, no, our God rescues us through the death and the crushing and the humiliation of Jesus on the cross. That is God's power on our behalf to save. That is how mighty he is to save. For us, through the death of the king on the cross on our behalf, not by many, not even by few, but by one, crushed, defeated, humiliated and crucified, on the cross. That's God's power to save. So what are you banking on? Because in today's story, we see two ways of responding to overwhelming circumstances. And aren't we all facing overwhelming circumstances? There's the response of Saul, which is fear to run away, to escape and go eat chow down some pomegranates under a tree and get the hell away from the situation. That's Saul's response. Or there's the response of Jonathan. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you believe it? So what are you like when you face overwhelming circumstances? One commentator says, what, what will God do today through, through single men and women who stand in the power of God for the cause of the gospel in our times? We'll never know unless we, like Jonathan, step forward into the world, offering ourselves to God, believing that he can save, whether by many or by the few. Jonathan's example challenges us to be daring in giving, giving and bold in our commitment to worldwide missions, church planning and other works of gospel growth. What are you like in the face of overwhelming circumstances? I don't know about you, but I'm like Saul. When I look at the sin in my heart and how persistently I run towards it and away from God, I just want to run away and hide. I'm never going to make it. But the invitation today is to not look to my own strength like Saul did, but to look to God's strength, the strength of his Savior that he provided on the behalf of his people who has fought the battle against Satan, sin and death on my behalf and risen victorious over the grave. My hope is not in myself. When I look at the challenges before us as a community in reaching the next generation for Christ, my own children included, and the forces arrayed against them in the world and the spiritual forces arrayed against them in trying to reach them for Jesus, I just want to run away and sit under a tree and... Just go, this is too hard, we can't do it. Let alone, I mean, this is just for the handful of kids that we have in our church, let alone the thousands that are in our community. I mean, how are we going to reach them for Jesus? It's too hard. It would be so easy to pack up my bags and go home. But then there's Jonathan. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. It's like John Knox in, in the 16th century. He, he was a dude who loved Jesus and had discovered the gospel of grace through Christ and his death and resurrection. And in the face of a huge opposition of a corrupt church that was opposed to his message of salvation by grace through faith and against terrible odds, just like Jonathan, he once said, one man with God is always in the majority. One woman with God 
is always in the majority. So he kept on fighting the good fight, preaching the word in season and out of season, whether people are listening or not listening, not with a sword of metal, but with the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. With the spiritual weapons God has given us. We don't fight with a literal sword. We fight with the sword of the spirit. Our weapons are the gospel and prayer. And so how are your sword handling skills? How how are your sword handling skills going? You know, it's so encouraging to read amusing about getting into the scriptures that Barb has written today. This week I'm going to be teaching 40, 50 teenagers how to handle the sword of the spirit so that they can stand up like Jonathan and preach and, and say that the Lord is able to save whether by many or by few. I've heard the story of Ron Hubby, who was the rector here in, in 1960 to 1965. And against incredible odds, they wanted to do a building project and there weren't many people and there wasn't much money. And the story goes that Ron Hubby was up on the roof doing the maintenance and fixing the roof by himself with another guy and things were looking very bleak and he said now 50, 60 years ago, don't worry, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so he just stood up and fought, preaching and praying, preaching and praying, preaching and praying. And look at us now. St. Philip's has continued to grow. God is faithful when saints stand up in faith like Jonathan. And so as we look at the overwhelming challenge, whatever the circumstances are before you and us as a community... We don't run away and hide like Saul. We stand up and fight and put our faith in the power of God. And please note that having faith that God will do it doesn't mean... It means we act. We fight like Jonathan. He does it through his servants. If you're off going, oh, God will do it, and sitting under a pomegranate tree and chowing down pomegranates, you haven't put your faith in God. He has a role for us to do, and it's fighting with the weapons he's given us of advancing the kingdom of God against the powers of darkness that people through the message of grace in Christ Jesus would be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And as we do so, we say with Jonathan, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Amen? Amen. Amen.